We pray that as you listen to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heartsease Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. Okay, well, it's great to see each other, one of you here. I have the uh, honor and the privilege of being here uh, to preach with you this evening. Pastor Philip uh, is actually on his way back right now from Connecticut. He's been up there for a three-day visit to uh, one of our church friends, uh, one of our pastor friends up in Connecticut. So he made a, a flying three-day visit up there on his way back. Uh, so in his absence, uh, I'm here uh, to bring you the word this evening. As honored as I always am, I want to give honor uh, to uh, our pastor, senior pastor Philip. Uh, again, awesome leader. Uh, he's also my best friend. I'm missing him actually, to be honest with you. I haven't seen him for like four weeks now because he went away, then I went away. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with him tomorrow. So all honor to him, uh, all glory and praise to God uh, for all that God has done in my life. Uh, and I do always want to just honor uh, my beautiful wife, who sadly can't be here this evening. Uh, baby Elijah is a bit under the weather tonight, so uh, she's had to stay at home. So the word I have for you tonight, the title of the message this evening is Live Your Calling Today. Live Your Calling Today. Okay, before we dive in, uh, let's just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for all things. We thank you for who it is that you are, Lord God. As Robert put there this evening, Father, it's all about you and who it is that you are, not what you do for us, but who it is you are as our Father and as our God, Lord. And we thank you for that, and we give you honor, we give you praise, and we give you glory. I pray, Lord God, that you would use me tonight, Father, use my mouth, and just give me the words to speak, Lord. Touch hearts, touch minds, Father God, and change lives. In the name of Jesus, and everyone in the house said, Amen. Okay, so live your calling today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about one of the biggest questions that Christians tend to ask. It's certainly something which I have lots of discussions with people about. Uh, It's one of the things which is most important uh, to them, and it burdens people sometimes, um, which I'll be covering in a little bit of detail. Uh, But the, the question is, you know, what is my calling? A lot of people want to know what their calling in life is. It's one thing to actually say, well, God, you know, you have my life. I want to serve you. Uh, But what does that look like in an individual's life? And very uh, oftentimes, as I said, it it can become a a bit of a burden to people, a bit of a, a weight, if you like. Because why? Well, because people want to please God, generally speaking. Once you're a Christian, you know, generally speaking, uh, you're not going to say, well, I don't want to please God. You're going to say that you would like to please him. And it's oftentimes a concern that we might not be actually fulfilling the calling that God has created us for. Because we all know God has created you for purpose. Amen? God has created you for purpose. And so, uh, and I've said these statistics before, but when there's a survey done across Christians across the United States of America, uh, one of the key questions was, do you know what your calling is? 83% of the people said no. 83% of Christians in America do not know what their calling or their purpose is. So it's a big uh, deal, it's a big question, uh, as I said, and it's an understandable question because one of the things that we like to have as humans is an idea of what our future actually holds for us. 
We, we like the security of having a plan. We like the security of knowing what's around the corner. You know, we don't like the nervousness that can sometimes be created by what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. So we like to have things mapped out in front of us. And that applies in all areas of our life. You know, in our home life, we like to know, uh, you know, what bills are coming up, when they're coming up what work in the house might need to be done, what vacations we're going to be taking. Uh, So in your home life, you like to make plans, certainly in the workplace. You know, you don't want to be turning up at work every day and wondering whether you still have a job. You like to know that you've got some sort of job security. And within that framework of your job, you like to know what uh, projects you might have to be taking on board. You might, you, again, you want to know what things are actually coming up so you can plan ahead. And even down to sports, you know, things like that. You need a structure. Uh, and in your finances, again, we don't like uh, surprises too much. Okay? So we, to, to, to want to know what God has planned for us is an understandable question. We like to know, as I said, what's coming up in the future. So there's nothing wrong with that, with nothing wrong with having the desire to know what your calling is. Now, the thought of us spending uh, our time doing the wrong things, you know, if we think about our calling, sometimes you can think, well, if I don't know what my calling is, uh, how how am I going to go about, what is it that I need to be doing? If I don't know what my calling is, I don't want to be wasting my time by doing things which God has not called me to do. So that's a, big, that's a big concern, obviously. You, don't, you, only, you know you only have one life. You have a certain limited number of days on this planet. And if you have a desire to please God, you don't want to be running around like a headless chicken doing something which God has not called you to do. So again, there are concerns uh, there, okay, that the thought of us spending time doing the wrong things or not doing the right thing, okay, it's a horrible, horrible thought. I mean, what if I was to go through my whole life and miss what it is that God wanted me to do? We talk about purpose, we talk about calling. What a horrific thought to know that if we're lying on our deathbed, we've missed what it is that God actually wanted us to achieve. So it is, it's a big, big deal. Now my aim tonight is quite straightforward. It's to give each of you that has a desire to please God, to give you hope. And more than that, it's to give you direction and it's to give you clarity. So that you can actually go through the rest of your life knowing that you are living out your calling. Okay, so as I said, it's a powerful, powerful message here this evening, okay? So, I'm not a prophet. Let me say that. I'm not a prophet. So I'm not going to go around this church individually and lay hands upon you and tell you what it is that God's got planned for your life. And on that topic, I would say, I would put out a warning to you. Be very, very careful. Yes, there are people who are called and have been given the, the gift of prophecy. Okay, there are others that would claim that. And and, and that's not the case. So be very, very mindful and be very, very careful. If somebody is prophesying over your life, and I have seen the results of people prophesying over people's lives, uh, they they then change their whole course of their life for it to fit in with the prophecy. Does that make sense? Somebody lays hands on you in church and says that you are going to be doing this further down the road, and you're nowhere near that, you're not doing anything that's related to that, it's very tempting, it's very simple and straightforward, particularly if you don't believe you know what your calling is, to switch your life, think you're missing your calling, and actually switch your life across. So I'm not, I'm not debunking prophesying, absolutely I'm not. Let it be known, that's a biblical gift, the gift of prophecy, but it's not a gift which is given to everybody. So be very, very careful uh, and specific and be very prayerful when somebody actually gives you uh, some prophecy over your life. But I believe, though, that God uh, has, does give us direction. I believe that God uh, lets us know what our calling is. He lets us know what our purpose is. And I believe that he does that through his word. 
I believe through his word, if we actually look at his word, I believe uh, that we can get direction, we can get given direction as to what our calling on our lives actually is. And I believe that sometimes we are so focused on looking in his word for the big answer that we miss the small ones. I think we're so keen sometimes, and again for the right reasons, it's not a criticism of anybody, for the right reasons, if you're motivated that you want to please God and you want to live out your calling, it's a big question. But you can get so focused on that big question that you miss the small answers which are actually laid out for you in God's word. Okay, does that make sense? So uh, let me give you something to be thinking about as we cover this topic tonight. I'm going to make a statement now. I'm going to stick my neck out with this. And I want you to stew on this a little as I run through the rest of the message tonight. Okay, and it may or may not change your perspective on wondering what your calling or purpose is. And here's the thought. The thought is, your calling is not for a single event or a moment of magic in your future. Everything you do that is inside of God's will is a part of of your calling. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you are walking in God's will, the things that you do walking in God's will, small or large, are all part of your calling. Because by definition, if God has called you and you are walking in God's will, the small things are as important as the big things. A calling on your life is not a single event. You are not called by God to perform one huge miraculous thing. You may be called to do that, but that's going to be amongst a whole lot of other stuff. Okay, so that, that's a thought for you to be thinking about as we're going along. You may desire, uh, your desire may well be to fulfill God's calling on your life because you want to be living in God's will. And that's, as I said, obviously, it's an awesome desire to have. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes you can get so focused on waiting for that big moment to come around, for some massive calling to take place in your life, we stop doing anything else while we're waiting. I've seen so many people who are waiting for their calling to become clear to them. And whilst they're waiting, they're doing just that. They're waiting. They're not doing anything else. And we can be so paranoid about getting involved in the wrong ministry or helping the wrong people or taking up all of our time serving in the wrong place at church that we end up doing nothing for God's kingdom because we're waiting for the right thing to come along. And let me tell you this, doing nothing for God's kingdom is never God's will for you. Doing nothing for God's kingdom is never God's will for you. My belief is this, if we make a decision daily that we're going to walk in God's will, God will set up the circumstances he needs in order that we fulfill our purpose. After all, it's God's plan, and it's not our plan. It's God's calling on our lives, not ours. It's his purpose that we're wanting to fulfill, and it's not our own. So it makes sense that if we just make ourselves available to be used by him, that he will use us the way that we were intended to be used. Yes? That makes sense? So God's purpose for your life does not mean one purposeful event. It means God's purpose for your whole life. When you say, I want to know what God's purpose is for my life, when we talk about God's purpose for your life, it's very easy to imagine that what we're talking about, if we are labeling one thing, one event, one choice, one decision, one action, and calling that your purpose. So before your purpose, you're not effective, and after your purpose, your job's done. 
That's, that's what we would imagine. When somebody says, what's, what's my purpose? They have in their mind that they have this one big thing. When we talk about God's purpose for your life, we mean for the whole of your life. God has a purpose for your whole life. God doesn't have a purpose to slot into your life. He has a purpose for your whole life to achieve. Does that make sense? I'm asking you because I'm not sure it does make sense. Okay? The way that I, it makes perfect sense in my mind, but I want you to obviously understand what it is I'm trying to say to you. By working on being in God's will every day with the small things, it means that we will be in the right place at the right time every time he wants to use us. If we are daily in his will. Now, Pastor Phil spoke on Sunday about David. And he spoke about how he made decisions and choices outside of God's will. And as a result of that, he wound up in the wrong place on his roof, looking down at Bathsheba, bathing in the tub. I want to go back a few years before that, at a time in David's life where he was making the choice on a daily basis to be in God's will and what happens as a result. So on Sunday, Pastor Phil spoke about being in the wrong place at the right time and what the consequences of that can be. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And while you're doing that, I want to paint a picture for you uh, to the backup, the, sorry, the backdrop of where it is and what it is that's happening. Okay, Saul, at this point in time in history, is king of Israel. And Saul is going against God's will. The decisions that Saul is making are outside of what God is expecting him and asking him to do. They're outside of the things that God wanted Saul to do when Saul was actually appointed as king. So God is dissatisfied with Saul. He's so dissatisfied with Saul that he wants Saul to be replaced. Okay? So he uh, plans on replacing him, and he's already sent Samuel the prophet to anoint David, who is Jesse's youngest son. Okay? Jesse has eight sons. David is the youngest And you may know the story, uh, but uh, Samuel is there to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Samuel knows that it's one of Jesse's sons which is going to be the king. He goes down the whole row of the sons who were present uh, in the king's court. There's one son missing because he's looking after the sheep, and that's David. They call David in, and Samuel anoints him with oil. So at that point in time, he is anointed, and everybody in that room knows that David is going to be king. Now, David has been anointed. He's been anointed as the king. He knows he is the future king of Israel. So what does he do? He goes back to his sheep. He goes back to a job and to a role which in those times was actually looked upon as being the lowest of the low. Looking after the sheep, being a shepherd was frowned and looked down upon. But he went back to it without question. He didn't think, well, I'm going to be king, so I'm going to kick back now until I actually get into my position. He went and he did what it is that he knew to be doing. In other words, he was continuing to carry out God's will. He was walking in his calling as a shepherd, and he went back to the sheep. So he knows, as I said, he's going to be king of Israel, but he also knows that now is not the time for his appointment. He's anointed, but he's not yet appointed as the king. So he's living his day-to-day in the will of God. Meanwhile, back at the palace... Let's pick up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. But the Spirit of Lord, the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. 
And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. All right, I want to look at a, few, a, a couple of really key points in this part of Scripture. A bit of theology here, all right, because effectively what we start off this verse with, it says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And this is a scripture which is sometimes used by some teachers, some preachers, some pastors to actually oppress the people in the church, to oppress the congregation. Because what it talks about here is literally the spirit of God left Saul. So the spirit of God was with Saul while Saul was actually being obedient. But when he started being disobedient consistently, the spirit of God left Saul. So as I said, it can be used by some preachers and has been used sometimes to put people under pressure and say to them, well, look, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, God's going to leave you. The Spirit of God will depart from you, the same way as it did with Saul. Let me tell you something very, very clearly here. In the Old Testament, it was usual. In fact, right away across the board, God's Spirit was not with people continually. God's Spirit came down during the Old Testament and strengthened people for specific lengths of time or specific tasks, okay? There are lots of examples of that. There are only really two people who are actually in the Old Testament whose spirit, where the Spirit of God was present at all times. One was David and one, one was John the Baptist. So it's very usual for God's Spirit to come in and out at that point in time. Now, as soon as Jesus Christ died on the cross, things completely changed. Because the Holy Spirit came down upon us, came down within us, and folks, he is here to stay. Irrespective of what it is that we do or we don't do, irrespective of the way we carry ourselves, irrespective of all those things, the Holy Spirit is with us until the point where we die. And that's a gift which was given, it's a promise which was made, and so there can be no fear drawn from this kind of scripture, because this is Old Covenant, this is Old Testament, okay? And it's important that I clarified that, because we're talking about, uh, firstly, the Spirit of the Lord leaving. The second reason that I'm talking about it is we're talking about a distressing spirit from God coming in, okay? It speaks in this scripture here about a distressing spirit coming in. What does that mean? It's not God's spirit, because God's spirit is not distressing, but it is a spirit which is sent from God with a specific purpose, which is to make Saul miserable. It's punishment. It's judgment for the way that Saul has actually been acting towards God's commandments and towards God's instruction. So this spirit is actually sent down to, to make him miserable, to make him depressed, to make him down. But it keeps coming and it keeps going. Okay, so uh, back at the palace, as I said, we've got, the, we've got Saul. He's now in this position where this, this uh, spirit is troubling him. And so his servants say, we're going to find you a harp player. Let's find you a harp player. Why would you find a harp player? Why wouldn't you find a, a, a doctor? Why would you not find a, a psychiatrist of the time? Why would you go for a harp player? Well, the reason for that is quite simple. Back then, music was medicine. They absolutely looked at music as being calming, as being soothing, particularly for troubles of the mind. So harp players, the music that they play was very, very soothing. And from that perspective, they were always the people that people turned to. Okay? And obviously, as you can imagine, if you're following this story through, you can see God's hand is upon it. Because God's making things happen. He's sent down the spirit, the, the spirit which is now troubling Saul. What's the answer to that? They need a harp player. Who's the best harp player in the land? David. David, his calling, another part of his calling was to be a musician. And not just a musician, the Bible tells us a skillful musician. So his calling was to be gifted musically. Okay, so he's a shepherd by day, he's a harp player by night. Okay, 
So as I said, that's part of his calling. Remember, we're talking about calling. We're talking about purpose in life. And we all know, you know, the story about David. Okay, we have several stories about David, all right? but the big one, David and Goliath. And again, we look at that story, and we're going to be coming to that story. All right? But it's important that if we remember as we're going along here what David's calling is and how he's actually living his, out his life. He is looking to the day-to-day. Every day he's doing what it is that he knows God wants him to do. Ten sheep, practice the harp. Ten sheep, practice the harp. So David living his day, his normal life, was literally that. As I said, tending sheep daily and then playing the harp by night. Okay? Going to work on the mountain and then playing music for his hobby. That is who David was. So let's get back to Saul and his servant's plan to help him with this disturbing spirit. Okay? Samuel 16, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 17, 19. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. Not a bad CV. Huh? Okay? Uh, and the Lord is with him which caps it all off nicely. Therefore Saul sent messages to, to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So where was David? With the sheep. He was with the sheep. He's where he is supposed to be. He's being obedient to Jesse, his father, and he's being obedient to God, with the sheep. Now remember, this is a future king of Israel. He knows it. Jesse knows it. God knows it. Saul, however, does not know it. Saul does not know that David is effectively his successor. Carrying on. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Armor-bearer at that point in time uh, was, uh, again, a very, very responsible position. An armor-bearer is somebody that looked after either a king or a commander, looked after their weaponry, looked after the shields and everything. Uh, And also at that particular point in time, an armor-bearer's job, which is a bit gruesome, uh, but when the king or the commander was going out, any half-slain people uh, that were left on the battlefield, the armor-bearer went round and actually finished them off. Okay. Uh, now, it's, it's widely believed that David was probably one of the last to actually carry out that thing because from that point moving forward, uh, commanders and kings used to ride in chariots, which tended to mean that they weren't actually going to be doing much killing, uh, and if they did, uh, the people were not going to be left half dead, so to speak. Okay. So, armor bearer, my point is this, very responsible position. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul... This is the disturbing spirit that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So we're now in this position where David has been living out his calling, and he is now in a position where he has been promoted. He's now an armor bearer for Saul. Uh, He is now a harp player for Saul. Uh, He's going back to his tending of the sheep each single day, and he's only going over to Saul when he's called by the king to actually come uh, to him to actually play the harp. So instantly, David becomes part of the king's inner circle. Okay? Is it based on anything that David did? It's not based on anything. that He didn't, he didn't get favor with the king for anything that David was motivated to do. David just was going about his daily business, living his calling day by day. Doing what God told him to do day by day. So here's a question I would ask of you. Did David know that he was going to become Saul's armor bearer? 
or even his harp player? Did David have aspirations or ambitions to be those things? Did David stop tending his father's sheep because he knew he was destined for bigger and better things? Did David, when he was anointed as the future king of Israel, suddenly decide that he was too good to perform menial tasks? No is the answer to all those questions. And we need to ask ourselves, is that how we are living? Are we applying ourselves in that same way? Are we carrying on going about our day-to-day business, performing menial tasks, doing things that we think maybe we're too good to do? Are we continually doing those things because we know that that's where God wants us at that point in time? Or are we instead stepping back from that, refusing to do that, waiting for the bigger and the better things to come along? David just went about his business, walking in God's will. And then God used him the way that God needed to use him. All right, so let's jump forward to one of David's most famous moments. Touched on this already, and you probably know the story of David and Goliath. I don't want you to switch off right now. I don't want you to think, oh, well, I know how this ends. Okay, I want you to run through this with me because, as I said, we're going to be looking at it from a slightly different perspective. Okay, so let's go to the battleground. 1 Samuel 17, verses 1, 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. And were gathered at Sokor, which belongs to Judah. They camped between Sokor and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So picture this. Picture this in your mind. You've got a huge canyon effectively is what this was and you have the the enemy on one side you have the israelites on the other side running through the middle of this uh, canyon you have the stream from which david actually picks up the five stones and this canyon is at points it's about a mile apart okay so from one side to the other side from one bank to the other side is about a mile apart you have one army on one side and one army on the other Carrying on, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's nine feet, nine inches. Nine feet, nine inches, okay? It had been a pretty effective basketball player, all right? Uh, So he's nine foot, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield-bearer went before him. Okay, so I want you to grasp a picture of the size of this man that we're talking about. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. And the coat of mail that he had, which is basically linked rings of metal to which protect them from sword blows, that chain, uh, uh, that coat of mail itself weighed between 175 and 200 pounds. The head of the spear that he carried, just the head, weighed 25 pounds. And the shield, okay, that's described here in Hebrew was actually a full-length body shield, which, if you're nine feet, nine inches tall, is a big shield. And there's somebody walking in front of him carrying this shield to actually protect him so that Goliath can then just worry about carrying his weapons ready for attack. So here's what Goliath did. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And this is a tactic that was much used uh, in the Eastern world, and it's called a representative battle. And the idea behind it is, if you've got two armies, rather than the armies fighting each other and kill uh, you know, countless thousands of people, what they did was instead was send a representative from each army. And the one person would fight the one person, and whichever one person won, that would then mean that the army that they're from was the winner. So you have tens of thousands of soldiers ready to fight each other, and the death toll was only ever one person. So Goliath has come down, and he's basically saying, his approach to this is, uh, there's no reason for everybody to die. Just send one person for me to kill. I'm the champion. Uh, Come and have a go if you think you're tough enough. And that's basically where, where Goliath is coming from. He's standing proud and he's saying, look, you know, come and have a go, okay? So moving on, and the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, get this next verse. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Now this, I read this last week whilst I was on vacation, this, this verse, and it hit me really hard. You have these two armies who are facing each other, all ready and prepared for battle. You have this one nine foot nine inch guy come down, stand in the canyon, shouting these words, and he does it morning and evening for 40 days. So for 40 days, you have the Israelite army afraid, afraid of this one man. Not able to do anything. No solution in sight. They don't know how to beat him. They have a problem. It's a big problem. It's a nine foot nine inch problem. It's something that they don't know how to overcome. And they're, af- they're afraid. They are fearful. Okay, so 40 days and 40 nights. Meanwhile, back at David's house. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. Fifteen miles, by the way. Okay, 15 miles is the distance from where he was looking after the sheep to go to this camp. He came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. So again, he's being obedient. All he's doing is what his dad told him to do. His dad told him, take this food, son, and go and see your three older brothers and see how they're getting on. That's that's effectively what he said. And what did he say? Yes, dad. And he went, and he was just following instruction. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Came up. He came up. In this scripture, it says he came up. What does that mean? Well, we're at day 41 now. Okay, for 40 days, he's come morning and evening. We're on the morning of day 41, and he's getting bolder. He's getting braver. He's getting more brazen. He's getting more brash. What do I mean? It says come up. There's two sides to the valley. There's his side, then there's the valley, and then there's the Israelite side. He has come down, he's come across, and he is coming up. So he's on the Israelite side. He's in their territory. He's really rubbing the nose in it. 
Okay, and it's, and it's underlined by the fact that it says that they ran from him. So if they're running away from him, he's got to be close enough to actually scare them. Okay? So now David hears that. Here's what he has to say. Here's the fact that Goliath is, de- is defying the Israelite army. Okay? And he's offended by it. Because, not because he's an Israelite and he's offended that they're talking about the Israelites. He's offended. Why? Because he is talking that way about what David calls God's army. The living God's army army. Now, why is he offended by that? He's offended by that because of his relationship with God. He is so close to God. And you know, from the Bible, it says he's a man after God's own heart. He is so close to God that he's offended that at somebody, this nine foot, nine inch whippersnapper is basically defying the God. He's calling God out and he's calling God's armies out. And David, this young lad is offended by it. The other Israelites are not offended enough to do anything about it, which tells me that David's relationship with God is likely better and closer and more intimate than any of the other people on the, on the bank there, to the, on, the, on the side of the mountain. Why is David's relationship with God closer? Why is he more intimate? Why is offending God offensive to him? I'll tell you why. Because every day he's been obedient to God. Every day he's been leading and doing what it is that God wants him to do. Every day he's been tending the sheep. Every day he's been running errands for his father. Every day he's been doing what it is that God has called him to do. So that result of him, as I said, being offended is a reflection of David's relationship. And that relationship is, is, a, is a reflection of what it is uh, that he does on a day-to-day basis. So carrying on. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, did I skip a verse? No, I'm good. All right, then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. So David had basically said to, to, to the army, you know, what's going to happen? This guy here is offending us. He's calling God's, the living God's army. He's calling us all out. What's going to be done about it? So then Saul heard that this was being said by David and called David to him. But then when David said, you know, your, your servants don't have, none of those guys out there need to worry themselves. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. But then Saul says to him, you can't do that because you're just a boy. You are a youth. And Goliath has been a soldier since his youth, which tells us that Goliath is not just large and proud, but is also experienced as a warrior, as a fighter, as a soldier. But David is not interested in any of that. David just says, I want to take care of it. Here's a key point. And I keep repeating this because this is the whole thrust, really, of this message. David woke up that morning not knowing that he was going to fight Goliath. As importantly, Goliath woke up that morning and didn't know he was going to be fighting David. Goliath woke up that morning just going about his business and saying for the 81st time, why don't you send one of your boys down here to fight me? David woke ready for another day of servanthood and obedience. That's all he woke up ready for another day where he was going to carry out what he knew to do. And through all of his obedience day to day, living his calling day to day, he was anointed as king. So he was anointed as king as a result of his day-to-day obedience to God. He was called to Saul and became his armor bearer on that particular morning. Okay? He was in the right place at the right time. And he was there at that 
at battleground at the right place at the right time to hear Goliath for the 81st time say, send somebody down here to fight me because he had been obedient every day up until that point. The whole Israelite army, the king himself, had no idea how to overcome this giant. King Saul was the only person out of the whole of the Israelite army who was actually, on paper, qualified to defeat Goliath. Saul himself was a very large frame. He was a very athletic frame. He was, uh, he was very renowned as a king, as a warrior. But his decision to not fight Goliath was out of fear. And it was also because at that point he had lost track. He wasn't following God's calling. He was not doing what God wanted him to do. His position as king in that time meant that he was the person that should have been fighting Goliath. That was his duty. That was his God-given authority and God-given duty. But he decided not to do it. And instead, David is there volunteering to do it. Okay? The whole of the Israelite army are there discounting David and saying and thinking that he is incapable of taking care of Goliath. Okay? I want you to think about this. When you are the one called to fulfill a purpose or solve a problem, you will see solutions that other people don't see or that others are too scared to make happen. What do I mean? I mean, let's try and relate this to your life. Let's say for the next 40 days, you just go about your business. You are just living your calling. You are doing, on a day-to-day basis, what it is that you know God needs you to do, which we'll be coming to very shortly. Day-to-day, you're just doing the menial things. You're doing the straightforward things. You're doing the small things. And then let's say on day 41... You go to your workplace, or something happens at home, something happens at church, something happens in a road accident that you're involved with, something happens somewhere where nobody else knows the answer to the problem. But because for the next 40 days, for the last 40 days, you've been doing what you want to be doing and should be doing, you've been following God's calling, you've been in prayer, You've developed a strong and deep and intimate relationship with God. Because of that, God equips you with what you need to solve that problem that nobody else knows the answer to. That's what we're talking about. That's what happened with David. David's relationship was so good with God that God gave him not just the answer, but he gave him the strength. He gave him the ability to actually overcome Goliath. So David went out and he stood before Goliath. And this is what David called out to Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Doesn't that fire you up? That fires me up. I'll tell you why it fires me up, because it's not about David. The first time that David heard that shout of defiance, That morning, when he was just going to deliver bread and cheese and find out how his older brothers were doing, when he heard that, the very first time he heard Goliath shout it, he was ready. He was ready. David was ready for the fight. David was ready for the battle. He was not ready because of battle training. He wasn't because, ready because of years of preparing himself for a big event or magical moment that he could call his purpose. 
He was ready because of a daily obedience to God. That's why he was ready. He was ready because he trusted the Lord completely. He trusted the Lord completely because of his daily relationship with God. He had a track record of God's intervention in his life when David needed him. He had a track record of killing the lion, of killing the bear. And he knew that when he faced Goliath, when he stood in front of that giant, that God was going to defeat him. David wasn't standing there thinking that David was going to defeat the giant. David was standing there knowing that God was going to use him to do it. So we know how the story ends. Goliath is defeated, not by David, but by God through David. And this story you know, can be twisted and turned, and it can be a great message and a powerful message about how the small guy can defeat the big guy, how you should always you know, take on your giants in your life. And you've heard messages like that when it comes to David and the Goliath, and there's nothing wrong with those messages. I'm not saying there is anything wrong with those messages. What I'm saying is that I'm trying to deliver you a different message. It's not about David defeating Goliath. What it's about is David's relationship with God, David's obedience to God, David's living day-to-day with God. That is what defeated Goliath. That's what defeated Goliath. God defeated Goliath through him. So what does all that tell us about our calling? It tells us that we don't need to be looking ahead and wondering whether our calling is to kill a Goliath in our future. We don't need to be preparing ourselves for a Goliath, for a big one-off event, for a magical thing to happen in our life. It tells us we don't need to be holding off and doing nothing, waiting for a big opportunity to serve God to come our way. It tells us that every day we have to get up and decide that we're going to tend to the sheep. We're going to trust in God, and we're going to walk daily in his will and daily in his calling. And if we grasp the fact that our calling is just about what we do and what we say on a day-to-day basis, that God is going to line up everything the way it needs to be for us to fulfill our life's purpose, the pressure is off. The pressure is off. Imagine you not having to wonder anymore what your calling is. Imagine you not being stressed about, out about what your purpose is or not knowing what your purpose is. Your calling and your purpose is in the day-to-day. That's what your calling is and that's what your purpose It's in the day-to-day. So let's take a very quick look at what living our calling each day looks like. I want to take what we've, what we've learned about David, the way we've looked at David, about the fact that David living this life, and let's just remember, this is all still, it's 18 years. It's 18 years from the point that he's anointed to him being appointed as king. So you can pick big events in David's life, big purposes in David, big callings in David's life, and you can see them throughout his life. The David and the Goliath, the him becoming king. But he wasn't just ready on that day and ready on that day. He was ready every single day in between. Okay, ready every single day in between. So I want to take what we've learned from David and I want to look at what it looks like for us to actually be living in God's will, living in God's calling uh, on a day-to-day basis. basis. I'm going to take a real quick look at this. Okay, we're going to look at three things that you are not called to do. Three things you are not called to do that a lot of people think they are called to do. Three things you're not called to do and three things that you most definitely are called to do. And this list, this list could have been 15 in each one. Okay, but Miss Nancy told me I've got to finish before 10 o'clock. Okay, so uh, there's going to be three things that we should not do, that we're not called to do. First and foremost, we are not called to judge. It's not your role as a Christian to judge people. It's not your role as a Christian to judge situations. It's not my job as a Christian to judge people. It's not my job to judge 
situations as a Christian. And yet it's one of the things that we do best, isn't it? It's one of the things that we find it the most easy to do. It's one of the things that we fall into. And the challenge with it is, you know, generally speaking, Christians tend to be very judgmental. And they also feel justified in being judgmental. And they also feel qualified to voice what it is they're thinking. Be it in actual voice, be it in social media, be whatever it might be. Now, I'm not saying that you are not entitled to an opinion. You absolutely are entitled to an opinion. But you don't have to speak every opinion you have. You don't have to voice every opinion you have. And what my advice to you would be, and this is advice to me as well, because I'm, I'm capable of judging. Absolutely I'm capable of judging. We need to work on that because we're not called to do it. We're called to do the exact opposite. Luke 6.24 says this, Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. We're not called to judge. Okay? Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, and, and, and you did not give your life to him just to give you the ability or the permission to judge other people. Next thing that we're not called to do. You are not called daily to worry. You're not called to worry. Okay, Matthew 6.27, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Again, we do it every single day. I know I do it. I'm guilty of this. Thinking about it, worrying about stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry, for saving there with two hands and two legs. Okay, we all fall into this trap. We're, a lot of us are wired this way again. We, like, we can justify it away. We can call it, it's not worry, it's planning. It's preparation. We can dress it up. We can call it all these different things. And ultimately, it's worry. It's worry. Worry is not helpful. Now, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't make preparations. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying to you is stuff that's out of your control, don't worry about it. That scripture is very, very powerful. You take it on board. How many of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? How many people have ever worried about something? How many people have ever worried about something which never actually happened? Okay, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you at all. Third thing, last thing that I'm going to talk to you about, what we're not called to do. We're not called to be negative. We're not called to be negative. It's so easy to be negative. In this society, in this time, it's very, very easy to be negative. In this moment in history, in this country, it's very, in the whole of the Western world, it's very, very easy to be negative. It's very easy to, easy to look at all of the news reports. It's very easy to look at all of the articles that you're scanning through on your Facebook and become very, very negative. Okay, it's very, very easy, but we're not called to be that way. Negativity is not light. Negativity is darkness. We're called to be a light in darkness. We're not called to magnify the darkness or to increase the darkness. And all it will do is, if you're being negative, it spreads. It's contagious. Being negative is contagious. Being negative, sadly, is way more contagious than being positive. Okay? So you're not called to be negative. Now, if you are developing your... your relationship with God, if you're in the Word, if you're in prayer, if you're all these things, this is a gradual process, but you'll find your outlook and your perspective becomes less negative. It becomes way more positive. Why? Because as Christians, you have what non-Christians don't have. This is a blip. This, every single trouble that you have going on right now is but a vapor. It's going to be over like this. 
You have been granted from the moment that you are saved eternal life. You have that ahead of you. You have a God that loves you. You have a God that blesses you. You have a Lord and Savior that died on the cross and took away all of your sin, all of the condemnation. Everything that you deserve has been taken away from you. Every negative thing that's been taken away from you. You have all of these things. That's real. That's real. Your circumstances, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is you're feeling negative or down about right now, I urge you, take a step back. Look at the size of that compared to the size of the God that we serve, the size of what it is that Jesus Christ did for you, and the size of eternal life compared to two. You have no reason to be negative. You are not called to be negative. So let's finish off and look at three things that you are called to do. Right quick. First and foremost, love God. You are called to love God. You are created to love God. It's as simple and it's as straightforward as that. How do I love God? Well, we could talk for days about that. I promise you I'm not going to. But you could talk for days about how you can go about loving God. How do you love God? Well, you just show him that you love him. You tell him that you love him. You pray and you tell him that you love him. I tell God every single day that I love him. Countless times I tell God that I love him. Why? Because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to? No, because I love him. That's why. Because I love him. Now, if you don't love God, you don't know who he is. I know who he is, so I'm not going to not love him. How can you know who God is? How can you know what it is that he did for you? Doing for you. And as Robert put earlier, just who he is. That in itself. How can you know that and not love him? If you don't love him, you don't know him. That's easy. Get to know him. Get to know him. Read the word every day. Be around other godly people. Learn about him. Study him. That's all people that know God have done. They've made a conscious effort to get to know him and in turn have come to love him. Luke ten twenty seven, Jesus answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's the first commandment. It's a commandment. And we should be literally living that out on our day-to-day. Number two, what should we do? Love others. Love others. Now again, this is not the easiest thing in the world necessarily to do. But it's something we're called to do. It's something which society has got very good at not doing. In my opinion, and I'm not judging anybody, it's very easy for us to get so caught up in our day-to-day spinning-the-wheel routine that we forget other people that are around us. How many people here have walked past a homeless person and not even given given them the time of day? I'll put my hand up. Tell you, before I was saved, I used to go walk the streets of London. I've got no idea. I'm embarrassed just thinking about how many homeless people I probably walked past. Now, I'm not saying to you every time I come to a homeless person now, I sit down with them for two hours. That's not what I'm saying. But now, as I said, these are things that we will miss. You just miss. If you're not active, if you're not active about loving loving other people, loving is an action. Agreed? Yes, it's an emotion. I feel love. But if I feel love, I have to display love. And to display love, that's an action. I have to speak words of love. I have to do actions of love. I have to give in a loving fashion. I have to sacrifice in a loving fashion. The doing of love are things that we learn to do. And they are things that we have to consciously decide to do. So we are called to do that on a day-to-day basis. Lastly, number three, live as a Christian. You're called to live as a Christian. 
Now, this one I could talk for weeks about, but I'm not going to do that either. And it's a very broad title, and I was a bit dubious as to whether to even put that as a, as a, a calling thing. But I did, and I'll tell you why I did. Because living as a Christian is what you're actually called to do. What does that mean? Read the Bible and find out. Read, read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Find out what it is to be a Christian. Then go on and read the book of Acts. And read the next stage of being a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not about you. It's not about you. You getting better and developing yourself and getting to know God and, and to press into him and develop an intimate relationship with God. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. It's about the more that you know God, the more that you love God, then the more equipped you are to love other people. It's about the more you know Jesus Christ and you know what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, the more you're going to talk about Jesus Christ to those people that don't know him. My mission in life is not to get so full of Christ and so full of God that I am just overflowing and just exploding with happiness and joy and a completely blind to everything that's going on around me. No. My purpose in life, my calling in life, my desire in life is to have a relationship with God where I love him so much that I'm overflowing that I can't help but just touch other people with it. I want people to ask me what's different about me. I want people to say, why are you happy all the time? Why are you smiling all the time? Why are you so confident all the time? Why this all the time? Why that all the time? I tell you, it's not me. It's not Pete. It's not Pete. But that's what it means to be a Christian. We are told to go out and to share the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, more importantly, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't have a close relationship with him, you're not going to talk about it. How many people here are nuclear physicists? I just knew you were going to put your hand up, Scotty. If I was to ask each and every one of you, apart from Scotty, for a conversation about being a nuclear physicist, the conversation is going to be a short conversation. Agreed? If you don't know who Jesus Christ is or what it is that Jesus Christ did for you, if you don't know who it is that God is, then you are not going to speak to people about it because you're frightened that you're going to have a very short conversation about it. So you're not even going to start the conversation. You know, I, I like to think that I know a fair amount about God and I know a fair amount about Jesus Christ. I know a fair amount about the Bible. I don't know any, everything by any stretch of the imagination. But I know enough that I'm equipped. I feel equipped to speak to anybody about the Bible and about Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you something. If I know 75% of what there is to know about the Bible, you know how much I need to know to actually bring somebody to Christ? About three verses. I, know about, I need to know about three verses. You, all you need to know about Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross for you, he got buried and he rose again. And as a result of that, you are forever forgiven and you have eternal life. How long was that conversation? You can say that to anybody. You can tell that to anybody. And that's what being a Christian is about. That is living your calling. That is walking out your purpose throughout your life. Amen? Stand to your feet if you would. We would like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's word into effect. At Heart Seas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. 
If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.